This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. It was 2001, about a month after 9-11, and my girlfriend Sophie and I were in California for a few months. I was working for a magazine in San Clemente, about an hour south of L.A., while Sophie was spending most of her time in Yosemite, climbing. I was jealous, not just because she was getting to climb all the time, but because she was a capable Australian climber living in Camp 4, long-term and looking for climbing partners. So every Friday, I'd make the six-hour drive and delve into the tourist bus chaos of the valley to hang out with Soph for the weekend and climb. Anything to get Sophie away from Camp 4's undersexed and overzealous guys that gathered like thunderheads around her. Tuolumne, in many ways, is the anti-Yosemite. Where the valley is crawling with climbers, tourists and hangers-on, Tuolumne is a quiet refuge. We decided to climb the Great White Book, a classic four-pitch romp no harder than about 5'6". It was a perfect introduction to the area before getting on harder and bigger things. I was climbing hard at the time, well above the grade of this climb. I'd grown up in the Canadian Rockies, where compact limestone and explosive cracks meant that running it out was part of climbing. I took the sharp end for the first pitch. It was a cruise, more of a ramble to get to the start of the real climbing. Listen up, I've been meaning to say this, I'm not the greatest, I'll never make that list, but every time I come home you're still there waiting. I handed the rack to Sophie. As soon as she started up the crack, it widened out. It wasn't your typical off with misery. The trouble was gear, or lack thereof it. Our largest piece, a number three Camelot, was useless. Soph lay back the corner crack and kept moving. She passed a small overhang and went out of sight. I fed out rope. She moved steadily, no pause at all as I fed out more. At my feet, the stack of cord got smaller and smaller. In the wind, I heard Soph yell. She was safe at the anchor. I marveled at her efficiency, and then as I started to climb, I realized why she had moved so smoothly. In the 50-meter pitch, there wasn't a single piece of gear. From bolt of belay to bolt of belay, nothing. Arriving at the stance, Soph just smiled and said that she felt good and didn't see any reason to stop. Besides, there wasn't really any other option at that point. The next pitch was crack again. Soph let off and once more the rope moved through the belay device with uncanny smoothness. No pause to place gear. Soph brought me up and handed me an unused rack. The fourth and final pitch was mine. Sixty meters of featureless slab to pad up. The top of the dome looked like the summit of a circus tent. I had no idea where the final anchor was, only that it was up there, somewhere. headed directly up, hoping to find gear. Five meters up, I crossed a small overlap and found a pocket about three quarters of an inch deep. I managed to stuff half a cam into the shallow depression. I wasn't fooling anyone. This piece wouldn't hold a fall. I padded my way upwards, looking for the end of the climb and searching for gear placements. Soph called up. I had five meters of rope left. I was 55 meters out with one piece that wouldn't hold anything, and the anchor was nowhere to be found. Finally, about 20 meters away, I saw the chains twinkle in the sun. I was off route. Way off route. A 
cloud of dread entered my mind. Would I have enough rope to reach the anchor? I imagined Sophie having to unclip from the anchor with no gear between us and tied together. If one of us slipped, we'd pull the other down. I took a deep breath and started to traverse to my left. Like the end of a compass, I sketched an arc across the dome. I still felt good, although somewhere deep in my subconscious, I was shitting myself. This is crazy. I was going to take a hundred meter whipper. You don't live when you take a tumbling hundred meter fall. One thought echoed louder than the rest. I really like this girl. Don't screw it up now. As I got closer to the belay, I almost couldn't believe my eyes. There was another climber. I hadn't seen him earlier. The route to the left of ours finished at the same small ledge. I was four meters away, dead right of the belay, and I could almost smell the steel. He didn't see me at first, and I was far too locked into the moment to say anything. Looking left, I saw something I didn't like. A little pressure ridge between me and the belay. The rock reared up a little steeper and changed in color. As I got closer, I could see that the rock was harder and slicker, almost polished. On a boulder problem, you'd trust it. Two meters above your last bomber nut, you'd trust it. Sixty meters out, I wasn't in a trusting mood. I looked for a way around it. Down climbing was super sketchy, and I didn't have the rope to go up and around to the right. My only option was to move across this short, glassy expanse. As I assessed my situation, I chatted to the guy at the belay. He kindly observed that I didn't have any gear in. Nice. I put one foot on the bulge, and it skated off. My heart stopped. As I regained my purchase on the wall, panic welled up inside me. I held it together, but the fuse was lit. It was time to get off this pitch. Now. The guy at the belay looked at me like he was about to see something bad happen. He stopped fiddling with his ropes and just watched. It was like whatever he was going to say evaporated before he could get the words out. I felt like a drowning swimmer beside a full lifeboat. The stranger's eyes were filled with helpless compassion. Searching for words, I said something like, The rock is pretty sketchy down here. He nodded silently in response. What I did next is something that I think about often. I still wonder if I made the right decision. I looked up at the random stranger and said words I've never said in the mountains before or since. Can you give me a hand? The guy didn't hesitate. He stretched his body against his clipped daisy chain, reached down and offered his hand to me. I was expecting a clipped sling or a bit of rope to pull up on, but what I got was an outstretched hand. I didn't even think. I grabbed his wrist and high-stepped into the belay stance. I clipped at the anchor and realized I had no saliva in my mouth to say thanks. Seconds later, he was gone. His partner had already scrambled up the easy terrain to the left. I brought Sophie up. She could see that my pitch was just like the two previous. We were shattered. We sat there in silence for a long time, trying our best to take in what had just happened. I never told her about the other climber, my plea, or the outstretched hand. In the years that followed, I told the story to a few people, but always left out the part of the guy at the belay. I've often wondered why. Was my ego too big to accept that I'd taken help? Was I embarrassed that I'd asked for help? Looking back, I can understand where I was coming from. I was in my mid-twenties and I had a lot to prove to the world. I wanted to measure up to who I wanted to be. I wanted to measure up to the strong rock rats that Sophie was hanging out with in the valley. I wanted to impress my friends and tell a good yarn where I was the hero of the day. So 
So should I have taken his hand? Should I have committed to the move, high-stepped the bulge, and stepped onto the belay? Was I a total chicken shit who took the easy way out at the first sign of trouble? I've replayed the possible outcomes a million times over. Sometimes I glide over the last move, and other times I sketch out and plummet. I'll always wonder what would have happened if I'd had to make those moves on my own, if a stranger hadn't reached out and lent a hand. Nearly a decade down the track, what do I think about this? Am I embarrassed? Proud? Wiser for it? The easy answer is yes. Yes to all of those questions. Life isn't a bolted sport route. Every day we on-site. The gear is sketchy and the route is difficult to read. You push yourself and search deep inside to see where the journey will take you. Sometimes you summit, some days you slip and fall. If you're lucky though, when you need it most, a stranger, a loved one, someone, will look you in the eye, reach out, and offer you a hand. That day on the Great White Book, Sophie and I scared the shit out of ourselves at 60 meter intervals. We fought our own battles, alone and together, attached by nothing but rope. Last year, we got married. Sophie and I have gone on to climb higher and harder, but none of those routes resonate quite like the Great White Book. We crossed a metaphorical threshold that day. I wasn't soloing, I had a rope running to my partner, and we were in it together, for better or for worse. And yet, if I was in that exact situation today, would I take the guy's hand or tough it out and try the move myself? Would I suck it up and go for it? Would I risk dying while tied to the woman I love? The answer to all those questions is, of course, still, yes. My name is Scott Kennedy, and this is my short. Music today by the cunning linguists, Dengue Fever and Great Northern. You can find all of the cuts and information about the bands at our site, dirtbagdiaries.com. Travel and adventure writer Scott Kennedy lives in Queenstown, New Zealand, with his wife Sophie. And while Scott might be a professional writer, the shorts are listener-generated. They come from listeners, people like you, people like Scott. So please, if you've got something to say, submit it as an essay to dirtbagdiaries at earthling.net. Support from the shorts comes from Patagonia. I'm Fitzcahal, that was Scott Kennedy. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.